Hi, I think we'll get started. I'm Jim Verdi. I'm a professor in CMS. I um, haven't met a lot of you. I've been on leave, so sort of out of it. But uh, I want to uh, introduce uh, Sun Ha Hong this evening, or this afternoon. Uh, who's joined CMSW this year as a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the humanities. Uh, he holds a doctorate in communications from the Annenberg School of Communications, Sasha's been there, uh, at University of Pennsylvania, where his dissertation focused on the impact of contemporary surveillance technologies on our concepts of knowledge and our thinking about what we can do with knowledge. He's published articles in Media and Communication, Games and Culture, the European Journal of Cultural Studies, Sport and Society. He's currently working on a book with the working title, Uncertainty and Surveillance in the Data-Driven Life. Uh, he'll speak this afternoon on knowledges of elder, surveillance, and uncertainty. Can everybody hear me okay? Uh, with the mic, without the mic, it's all fine. I'm very loud, it'll be fine. Okay, so thank you so much for turning up. Um, let's try and make it an entertaining next 45 minutes or so. So let's get started. So we know who this is, Edward Snowden. Snowden says it's there, but we don't quite see it. I mean that we now know about the American state surveillance systems newly developed after September 11. We know, but it remains secret and unseen, practically inaccessible to everyday life and ordinary citizens. We have proof, but the proof comes in the form of a vast set of documents, which is too enormous to be properly legible. The proof provokes additional speculation a lot of the time, as often as it does inform certainty. At the same time, we have the National Security Agency's analysts internally complaining, you can't read this, but internally complaining of analysis paralysis and data overload. Their efforts to collect everything is a data hunger, which leaves gigantic material footprints in remote archives. By remote, I mean Utah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but this data in such massive volumes expresses terrorism's unknowability as much as its predictability. And then, you know, you have folk like uh, General Clapper, we'll see him again, spokespersons of the state who insist to the public, we do have proof that surveillance works, it's just that the proof is classified, so you're just going to have to believe us. <laughs> but let's cast our gaze elsewhere for a second, away from the political limelight. We've got a similar set of technologies and a similar entanglement of knowledge and uncertainty reappear in project of self-tracking. This is bedded, it is a small sensor tucked beneath the bed sheet. It will measure your movement, heartbeat, respirations, and other kinds of physical viscera. When you wake, your consciousness is greeted by a numerical sleep score telling you how well you must have slept. So you have connected automated machines that seek to know you on your behalf, even while your consciousness has turned in for the night. This is a good one. Before sexual intercourse, you toss your smartphone onto the bed, just like so. Spreadsheets automatically tracks duration, number of thrusts, and loudness. I'm not making this up. 
the human body is, of course, a promiscuous emitter of data, whether in sex, jogging, or sleeping. And this data is really, really nicely, it's right for quantifying, for prediction, for optimization. This is Larry Smarr. He's a distinguished physicist, I think, in CalIT2. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that anyway. So he claims that by tracking his microbiome, he was able to diagnose the onset of Crohn's disease earlier than his doctors could. And so as he swims in his own gut data, literally, that, that is gut, um, enthusiastic commentators are proclaiming him, proclaiming him a pioneer of a near future. A future where our senses and self-experience is upgraded through machines into a most serene objectivity. So these scenes that you've seen, these scenes anchor the stories of the next half hour, 40 minutes. They're part of a wider penumbra of practices and hype. Big data, biometrics, algorithmic decision making, corporate data mining. Now, I know these things are not the same and they're also not centralized into a single body. But there is a kind of a, you see something like this around every street corner effect at the moment. They're sort of springing up in a distributed way. And I think that makes it important to try and identify certain tendencies <coughs> that start to characterize what it means to say, we are data-driven in our decision-making, we are data-driven, we're getting new knowledge out of it. So that's the tendency I focus on. The effort to render things known, predictable, calculable, and how pursuing that hunger entails, in fact, many close, uh, many close encounters, marriages of convenience, with the uncertain and the unknown. So when I talk about surveillance here, it's not reducible just to questions of security and privacy, important as they are. This is a scene for ongoing conflict about what counts as knowledge, who or what gets the authority to declare, to declare what you are, what we consider good enough evidence to decide to watch people, to change our diet, to change our sex life, to arrest people. What we're seeing is a renewed effort at a very modern project of objective knowledge, factual certainty, of capturing the viscera of life into bits, of yielding the right numbers that tell us what to do. So with that, let us move on to the first episode. Here's a number, 54. That was how the state responded initially to the Snowden leaks three years ago now. How could such a surveillance system be justified? It's so indiscriminate, so vast, it's so secret. Well, the POTUS, Barack Obama, had a simple answer. He said, at least 50 threats were averted. Lives have been saved. The NSA's director, General Keith Alexander, followed up. 54 different terrorist-related activities. So you've got evidence, you've got numbers. Nobody wants 54 terrorist attacks to happen, so the case must be settled. The trouble was, of course, that the 54 could not actually be presented for public verification. It was all classified, they said. We wouldn't want our enemies to know, they said. So 54, it's, the, it's a magic number here, right? It's trying to invoke a certain kind of credibility, authority, verifiability but it's sort of hanging in the air, shrouded in uncertainty. He might as well have said 200 for all we know, 500, whatever. So once we start, and once we start to lift the cover of this 54 a little, once we start to try and figure out just who has been stopped in what way, we start to see that this is not a very clean figure of surefire successes. This man is Sami Osmakar. Uh, I can't pronounce his name actually, but a Kosovo-born American and Muslim. Until 2011, his known actions amounted to uh, verbal criticism of democracies 
uh, a single fistfight with a particularly rambunctious Christian street preacher. Um, he got off lightly that time. So that's all they knew about him. But then a series of micro decisions occur by FBI agents um, and informants. And so these people are just trying to do their jobs. And they decide that this guy is worth looking into a little bit more, maybe. And so Osmakar ends up meeting a man named Davos, an FBI informant, and then is introduced to someone called Amir Jones, uh, AKA FBI undercover agent. Uh, and afterwards, Osmakar was supplied with money. He was supplied with guns that he could buy with that money that he just got. He was trained how to use the guns that he just bought with the money that he got from them. Uh, he was taught how to strap on the bombs as well. Uh, he was encouraged to do something about his feelings. Uh, he was even given money for a taxi so that he could actually show up in the attack spot. And of course, the attack spot is where all the FBI agents are waiting to arrest him. During the process, uh, uh, the FBI agent spoke of Osmakar as a retarded fool who needed the FBI's help and expertise in order to actually become dangerous enough. And when he became suspicious enough, dangerous enough, uh, uh, arrestable enough, that's what they refer to as a Hollywood ending. So here you see in the hotel room, there's uh, Amir Jones' uh, mosaic is sort of training him on how to do this stuff. Of course, this means that it becomes impossible to ever confirm what exactly Osmaka would have done if he did not have the FBI's encouragement. The price of preemptive certainty, security, the price is the absolute unconfirmability of justice in a particular moment. Osmar Khan's case is just one amongst many. And in fact, one of the other cases around is of Basali Saeed Mualin, a Somali-American. And that guy is notable because that's the one case where the government said, we can't tell you about the 54, but we can tell you about the one, the chosen one out of the 54, and that is Mualin. Here is a really good example of a guy that we caught because of dragnet surveillance. We couldn't have done it without. Of course, when you look at the court proceedings, what you find is a fairly nebulous set of comments that he makes in phone calls. Uh, things like, we are not worthy, less worthy than the guys fighting, which could, which could mean a lot of different things. And so a couple of controversial translations and prodding and coaxing later, they're using that to push a very, very strong case against him. And they're using him as an example to say, this is how we catch people with surveillance. This is how we get the necessary knowledge, the certainty. This pattern is on the rise. One report from the Human Rights Watch puts the number of these, what I call fabrications, at about 30% of counterterrorism convictions between 2002 and 2011. So when I say fabrications, I mean the deliberate, planned, an increasingly systematic practice of producing what sufficiently counts as evidence in counterterrorism operations. Note that fabrications is a word we usually use to say, you know, that's bad, that's fake. That's not necessarily what I mean. It comes from the Latin fabricatus, to build, to make. Because it's a practical strategy. And you can easily think of arguments that say, well, maybe we don't get as much, we don't get as certain and prudent as we would like, but maybe it's worth it. And the line of is it worth it is exactly what I'm trying to point out, that the line is always on the move. And of course, this growing tendency towards fabrication is itself a response to the narrative. And now you'll see. 
response to a narrative that terrorism is becoming radically unpredictable, radically distributed. That's what we've all heard in this country since September 11. And it's, an, it's a narrative that was being pushed internally by intelligence agencies around the mid-90s, the late 90s. Um, it's this idea that, you know, back in the good old days, at least the Irish nationalists, the American white supremacists, these guys were card-carrying dangerous persons. They could be traced down to specific organizations and, and national uh, sources of funding. But now, as the Joint Inquiry start, uh, staff statement after 9-11 says, the, the argument goes that there's a new breed. There's a radical uncertainty. There's a radical unknowability that we have to combat. And I'll come back to this labeling of a new breed a little bit later. So you get a double bind here is what I'm saying. On one hand, you admit that you can never be 100% sure who the next terrorist is, where the next attack is going to be. But on the other hand, the political and moral pressure to predict becomes overwhelming. And so you have Esan al-Shifa Sadiqi. In 2005, Sadiqi was 19 years old. Uh, he was arrested and sentenced to 17 years in prison for suspicious activity. By suspicious activity, they meant translating jihad-related texts online, uh, saying some angry jihadi-like things online. Um, and as you will see here, a ludicrously amateur casing video of Washington, DC, where they're allegedly uh, scoping out their targets. Um, they're not very good at driving, they're not very good at taking videos. Um, although the kinds of things they say is rather alarming. So, in Sadiqi's, so with Sadiqi, again, for most people I think there's reasonable cause for suspicion at least. But then the question is, where do you go from there? In a rare moment, Sadiqi's family, who has since been campaigning for his innocence, they were able to meet Philip Mudd, who is a man that was the deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. So this was actually one of these, uh, one of these guys who were calling the shots on what to do with people like Sadiqi. And they ask, how could you do this, you know, so on and so forth. And he says, people like me are in a difficult position. We cannot afford to let even a single person slip. Right. And other officials in this period talk about a zero-tolerance climate. So they say it's sort of an unofficial policy coming down during the Bush administration, and in fact the Obama administration afterwards as well. The idea of zero-tolerance is of course kind of a joke because it's not like we were tolerant of terrorism before and we just decided to tighten up. But it's more of a political and moral pressure to say we cannot afford to fail even a single time. And when that happens, it becomes far less permissible to respect the rights of suspects because you cannot write off any attack as an acceptable risk or an inevitable loss. Right? So fabrication, as I said, is a practical strategy. It's filling the gap here, ensuring that uncertainties, because that's all we have, is coaxed into the realm of sufficiently known, sufficiently certain. So I'm talking about this because I think fabrication is one example of the new production lines in this knowledge system. By production, I mean how things that might otherwise seem uncertain or debatable become rendered, hardened into things that we end up saying is, yeah, that's good enough for practical exigencies. So you find actors in the FBI, the informants who are often former criminals trying to earn a living through 
this kind of job. You've got these people rewriting the rules of the game, often on the fly, to meet their own kinds of practical pressures on the field. Now, there's consequences, obviously, to this kind of thing, consequences that go beyond the specific innocence or fate of people like Siddiqui. When you establish the 54, when you talk about the threshold of zero tolerance, when you talk about predicting people as unpredictable as they might be, what does that mean? What does that do to our thinking about risk, about chances, about dangers? Consider the rationale employed by President Obama when he was coming out to defend the surveillance program. So Snowden leaks happen and he comes out and says, well, look, you know, there's these modest encroachments in privacy, but it was worth us doing. Worth us doing, what does that mean? It's like saying there's pros and cons of this NSA system, but when you weigh them, when you measure them, surely you get a value that tells you, oh yeah, it's worth doing, you know, it's, it's, it's a net positive. Yet how can surveillance be balanced like that? How can you assess its effect in such strict quantifiable terms? In fact, Mr. Obama knows this. He has been known to tell his aides, don't get too worked up about terrorism. Don't go out of proportion. The odds of people dying in a terrorist attack is actually pretty low compared to a car accident. Some people have said compared to lightning strikes. Um, so again, here's this probabilistic language of having perspective, having proportion. But I think this kind of language demonstrates just how weird it is to think probabilistically about these things. How do you statistically pass an event like September 11? But the play of correlations and probabilities is precisely how data-driven surveillance promises to render these things known and preventable. So what I'm saying is, on one hand, there's an impossibility of statistical risk calculation. But on the other hand, there's a renewed vision of total calculability, and these things are always feeding into each other in a cannibalistic circle. For instance, consider the well-known see something, say something campaign. It's actually trademarked by, the, uh, by Homeland Security. Um, one of its implementations is Manhattan's subway system. So after September 11, there's political pressure, and they decide to install multi-million dollar system, mostly CCTVs, uh, and then start, you know, put, start putting all these posters up everywhere. As Harvey Moloch has shown, Firstly, the 1944 figure, it's not traceable to any existing documentation, as far as we can tell. Um, somebody just you know, thought, hey, 1944, right? Um, and secondly, the entire system has yet to produce a single promising lead about a terrorist attack. I think in the first seven years of its life, it caught a few misdemeanors like thefts or little fisticuffs. Now, a lot of people will look at that and say, well, that was a waste of money, or you know, that was, a, that was a waste of civil rights. But the whole point is, we, can't, we are no longer capable in this case of balancing this equation. Let me put it to you this way. If there's a surveillance program that has a 0.00002%, insert many zeros as you want, you know, a minuscule chance of catching a terrorist, uh, let's say it inconveniences and detracts from the civil rights of about you know, a million or 10 million Americans. Is it worth it? I'm not, sure there's, I'm not sure there's a decision theory way to answer that question. Right. Um, because, a sing because of this idea that even a single terrorist attack is 
unacceptable, that it is of catastrophic risk. So when the what-if side of the equation is that big or that uncertain or, you know, when it balloons in size like that, the equation itself becomes unquantifiable. So when I say zero-degree risk, I'm sort of talking about this situation where we still retain a mathematical or probabilistic mode of talking and thinking about these things, but the actual calculability of these situations reaches, reaches, a, point, reaches a point of negligibility. And so you have speculation that more or less performs a calculability. So fabrication, zero-degree risk, here's how I'm putting things together, right? If fabrication is about using proof it's about, if it's about producing a sense of certainty, it's about, then zero degree risk is about the kind of rules, the codes, the rules of thumb, the heuristics that we use to run those equations, to try and make sense of what we're doing. Skip that one. <laughs> so, so much for the 54, right? But Remember, the 54 is not even the end of the story. The 54 is only meaningful because they're pointing towards a much larger and much more unknown backdrop of threat. The people who don't get caught, the people who are thinking about it but not doing it yet, the people who will go out there later and kill people, the people who have already been successful. And so, he liked The Walking Dead and the Game of Thrones, he spoke to, smoked a copious amount of weed, he was not a loner. He's a Muslim but not so religious, he was so, so all-American. These were the words of friends, acquaintances, investigative reporters, professors, police workers about Tamala Nejoka Zanev. So, as we all know very, very well, these are the Boston bombers. And in the wake of what they did, there was a frenetic public effort to narrativize, rationalize, render knowable this apparent cohabitation of radical terrorism in a normal American life. It was easier with Tamalan because the Tamalan, the older brother, had already become distant and conservative religiously after the premature end of his boxing career. Zhoka'a or Jahar would watch HD shows. He would smoke weed with Nate, white, well-adjusted uh, Nate. Um, and so there was this narrative that said, isn't it scary or isn't it odd that he seems such a normal human being whose thoughts and emotions we can predict? And you know, the kinds of details that come up are notable. It's as if we're saying, listening to the same music doesn't mean you have the exact same political outlook, but at least I will know by the broadest of brush strokes that you will see the world as I do, that you will not see it in some crazy and deranged way, that you will see September 11 as tragedy and not as farce. Except, of course, he didn't. Later on, uh, Jahar allegedly subscribed to the theory of 9-11 as an inside job. Um, and so you start getting testimonials about how he stopped listening to music. He became anti-fun. He grew a beard. Uh, he criticized US foreign policy. Individuals like Jahar are so problematic because they confound the perennial effort to cleanly categorize enemies and allies threats and suspects from normal citizens. When you can't do that, the only solution is start to think about 
the, even the most minuscule possibility of terrorism latent in every single individual. So there's a distribution that makes uncertainty much harder to capture and restrict. And so there's all these dogged efforts to resolve Jahar's psyche into a neat narrative of belonging. Or people try to locate what was the exact moment and incident that caused this transformation into a monster. So there's this idea that a terrorist that cannot be known, cannot be predicted, and is the most dangerous. And so, surely there is some narrative, some causal chain that can explain them and render them knowable. Now, as I said, individuals like Jahar go by a familiar label, the lone wolf. Things are, of course, rarely as new and singular as we imagine. The lone wolf as a term actually derives from white supremacists, American white supremacists in the 1990s, Tom Metzger and Alexis Curtis, who were internally speaking to other supremacists, saying, we need to find new ways of avoiding the authorities. That's the origin of the term. In this context, post-September 11 context, however, the lone wolf comes to express something different. It acts as a kind of a ghost, a figuration of the unknown, an amorphous body for all the unpredictable ways in which we are vulnerable. And yet, as I said, the lone wolf is not simply the moniker of mystery. It is also a name that lets us try and figure it out and say, yes, we can know, yes, we can predict. In recent years, we've seen a whole flurry of academic, state, and popular efforts to try and figure out what makes a lone wolf. And the, kind, the way they do this is quite revealing. They'll start by saying, you cannot define a lone wolf. You know, this is all sorts of different people who just snap. But then they'll say, well, why don't we try and, if we only got the data on their demographics, if we only knew about their mental health conditions, their marriage status, their job status, how many girlfriends they've had, so on and so forth, then couldn't we figure something out? So these kinds of studies attempt to integrate the lone wolf back into the traditional matrices of statistical and correlational knowledge. In summary, you've got a situation where the lone wolf is the bogeyman. It's trotted out to say, look how scary it's getting. Look how unpredictable it's getting. That's why we need indiscriminate surveillance. On the other hand, this very idea that the lone wolf is unknown but must be known this situation allows certain kinds of approximative and stereotypical attributions to sort of sneak back into our use of reason. And so people start talking about the stereotypical lone wolf as Arab, Muslim, brown, young, antisocial, loser, hasn't got a girlfriend, hasn't got a job, <coughs> ugly, things like that. Never mind all the non-Arab and non-Muslim mass killings that have been going on in this country for year after year. And never mind that the actual white origins of the term lone wolf and you know pre, uh, pre, pre, presaging figures like the Unabomber. And so things like recent conversion to Islam, or as you saw, growing a beard, become dramatic markers of guilt, not only in the trashy, trashiest of mass media outlets, but also in supposedly respectable scholarly studies. Probably the best example is this. This is an internal document leaked by Snowden, and it's one of the training manuals for one of uh, for NSA surveillance systems. And if you look in the bottom, this is one of the default names that they use, Mohammed Bad Guy. Um, so literally, the training goes, how are you going to catch Mohammed Bad Guy, who is sort of Al-Qaeda, and Mogadishu Somalia, Mohammed Bad Guy's brother-in-law? 
Um, so that's sort of the silhouette that we're working with, even as we say we don't know anything about these guys. The final part of the picture of this 54 is the people, the things, the institution, the codes that actually perform the work of identification. The people who are making this knowledge machine work. The people who stamp the seals, open the gates, declare the numbers. The people who conduct the ceremonies, open the missives, speak in the name of knowledge. Here's one, Diane Feinstein. When the snow then leaks happen, she jumps to the cameras and says, I wish I could tell you about everything I know that shows me why this system is so great and saves lives. But I'm sorry, I can't, it's classified. What do you want us to do, Diane? She stands at the gate of the law and she will not give up the key. She says, you cannot look inside, you just have to trust me. Diane Feinstein, of course, had been chairman of the US State Select Committee on Intelligence, a major oversight body for the state's intelligence activities. So this is an external auditor to the NSA surveillance programs who is now coming public to defend the intelligence agency's right not to be audited by the public. Right? Tongue twisters and all that. Same thing goes on when we have Senate hearings uh, that are open to the public. So, you know, it's supposed to be for us to read freely and take information from. Uh, so, this is Director Clapper again, the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, have our European allies, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yes, they have, and I could tell you more in a classified session. Okay, well, do the Russians have the Snowden documents? Uh, you know, I could tell you about that in a classified session. Those two are the only questions Senator Irwin asked. Um, so, it's really good that we have public hearings to tell us which particular things are not public, because that's, that's about the only thing we learn from that. <laughs> now, I know you could just say, this is just, you know, isn't this just a PR problem? You know, surely back in the secret rooms, back in the darkened halls where politics really happens, you've got people who in the know looking at these things and working it out. Well, that's supposed to be the FISC, the FISA court, uh, which is a court that meets in secret. And what it does is it takes documentation and requests from people like the NSA, uh, who will say, we want to watch these people, we want to do this uh, for, because we think there's a danger and we promise that we won't do anything bad with it, we won't look at what they're doing, uh, we won't look at what pornography they're into, anything like that. And the court sort of has to decide on the legality of this process. Reggie Walton, one of the head judges of the FISC for some time, he admits that the court actually has no ability to check whether anything they're being told is true or not. There is no enforceability here because, of course, the judge can't exactly go and look inside the NSA servers and check what they're doing. Um, you get a similar kind of situation in the public or normal court. Over the last 50 years, you've had a very strong tradition in the US of state secrets privilege, which is a judicial admission where the judges say, yes, uh, okay, you're getting, the government is getting sued on some secret thing that they did, but we simply cannot review or interpret evidence. So they say, the evidence against the executive branch cannot be checked because the executive branch has decided to make it classified. So this kind of situation is what I'm trying to call interpassivity. Um, we all know the word interactivity. That was the sexiest word for a few years, right? Um, and central to that sexiness is the promise that you can do things, you know, you can make choices, you've got agency, you're, you know, you're interacting, literally. But there's also pleasure and utility in the other end of the scale. It's about 
it's about the practical need to defer some of your knowing. So by no means am I painting an idyllic situation where you know everything to the last detail for yourself and you don't need to trust anyone else. That's not reasonable, especially in today's society, right? Um, and so again, just like fabrication, it is an alliance of convenience. It is a practical heuristic. It is a practical strategy to deal with the fact that we are now being asked to have opinions about a program that is still so secret that the judges who judge the program aren't quite sure what it's doing either. Now, the odd thing is, this kind of interpassive relation isn't restricted to the state. Even if you decide to go the other way and say, Snowden is a hero and I'm going to believe in reforming or dismantling the surveillance state, so on and so forth, this is Big Brother. Even if you go down that path, a similar relationship of knowing, not knowing is occurring. Who has read every internal document leaked by Edward Snowden? Okay, good, because I have There's too many. <laughs> um, and I'm supposed to be researching this stuff for a living. Uh, of course, not only is it too big to read already, we still don't know how many documents still haven't been released. Uh, the US military has accused Snowden of stealing 1.7 million. Um, the secrecy archive cryptomes uh, used to say, given the rate of release, it would take 26 years for all of the Snowden documents to come to light. If you check now, they revised their estimate. It is now less precise. They think it's anywhere between 20 and 620 years, depending on how many documents are there. Um, and anyway, Snowden didn't even steal all the documents, right? Peter Gallison says, just in the year 2011, the US government classified 92 million documents. So there's a gigantism here, right? When we were talking about zero tolerance before, now we've got ludicrously large numbers that we don't know what to do with. And when this happens, what you get is a situation in which Snowden does what he does to try and bring transparency and public debate. He says, my primary motive is make people know and then make right decisions for themselves, the nice Habermasian process. But direct and public forms of knowledge often remain impractical even when we have all the information or a heck of a lot of information. And so Edward Snowden becomes the figure that stands in for our lack of knowledge, as if to say, I really couldn't say for sure, I'm too busy, but concerned citizen Edward has told me that bad things are happening. We see an inadvertent symbol of this in Citizen Four. Is about the new the Laura Poitras documentary. So this is Glenn Greenwald. So he's telling Snowden, there's a new source, new whistleblower, who's given us some information. And he's writing things down because, you know, they don't want to be eavesdropped. And now, and then basically what's happening is... And that's actually... That's really dangerous. On the... Yeah, it's a very exciting cinematic moment where you look at a guy looking at a piece of paper and go, wow. Uh, I mean, that's what you get, right? What you're getting is you're being put in the position of a public observer who does not have access to that information itself, the real thing. And you're sort of having to simulate kinds of trust relations or practical ideas about how the world must work in order to make everything fit together. 
Now, I'm not saying that they should just show us what's on the piece of paper. Obviously, you know, you don't want to just go ahead and reveal these whistleblowers like that. But it's illustrative of where in the whole knowledge network we become positioned, even in a process that is meant to be a radical act of resistance in the name of transparency. So expertise, secrecy, trust, these are all different names for the ways in which those other than ourselves determine what counts as true, probable, certain, and valid. The point is that when it comes to present day surveillance, the relations governing who we trust and who audits the people we trust and who tells us what we're supposed to know, these relations are changing. And they're changing in a way that we cannot quite keep track of because we're actually left out of that process. So we're supposed, to, we're supposed to support a technological development that gives us superior knowledge than ever, while we are left in a situation where we do not even know for sure who's in the know, if anybody. So on the stay side, that's more or less what you have. You've got a sort of one-two punch pattern. Claims to better knowledge involve projecting the uncertain and the unknown, like the lone wolf. And these uncertainties, in turn, license new arrangement, heuristics, tricks of the trade by which we make things count as knowledge. So let me turn now, more briefly, I promise, to a rather different scene, right? The confluence of wearable technologies, miniaturized smart sensors, and cloud connectivity into things like Fitbit, into uh, brainwave sensing headbands, or even on the medical side, tiny little tattoos uh, that embed sensors under your skin. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that we now call self-tracking. And self-tracking in terms of how the geeks talk about it, how it gets reported in places like Wired, how the Quantify Self community, which is now global, talks about it. It's being glossed in terms of intimacy. You, know, you want the data to come close to the skin or under your skin. You want it to watch what you do, what's inside you. It's going to give you knowledge about things you tell nobody else. It's going to give you knowledge about things that you can't remember yourself. So here's this narrative that says the pre-technical human, which itself is an illusion, but let's go with that, you know, as if we used to live as a blind, stumbling amnesia for centuries. What did I have for breakfast this morning? I'm not sure. Why am I so pissed off right now? I'm not sure. What makes me really happy? I don't know. So on and so forth. You know, that's a very depressing prospect. And so you enter the machines and their data will provide a clear, objective, antiseptic kind of self-knowledge. One entrepreneur labels it a humanizing technology. That is to say, we will finally become good humans who know ourselves, whereas we've had sort of like a hole in our brain or something before. A crucial aspect of this intimacy is its backgrounding in human phenomenology, in human sensory experience. That is to say, even as these machines seek to get as close to us as possible, they want to be forgotten. They want to be roaming about our bodies and in our homes without availing themselves to our attention. They need to be automatic. So if on the state side, you've got the NSA, say, uh, collecting upstream data of fiber optic cables, so they're basically doing a parasitic leeching of the above ground normal internet. In the same way, these machines want us to just go around and do our thing. And they'll be sort of working at a different subterranean level. Consider the unfortunately named mother. Mother knows everything. This, 
yeah, I'm sure they knew what they were doing. Uh, this, this product offers small nondescript motion cookies that can be attached to domestic objects like toothbrushes and pillboxes. So they're going to track motion, temperature, they've got proximity sensors. So you know, you can do things like, uh, you can do things like check whether you've taken your keys. I didn't today, by the way. It's going to be a problem later. So if I had this, then I wouldn't have, right? Um, so each given use it seems rather pedestrian and you know commonsensical, but as a whole, the arrival of so many of these tools points towards a domestic environment where this kind of machinic tracking goes from a specific action to a general fact. That's the same as the Web 1.0 to Web 2.0 kind of, kind of situation where before you had to click on something to make anything happen, and now everything is going on already in the Twitter, uh, in the streams of Twitter, in the buffering, the RSS feeds, whatever else, and you're sort of dipping in to engage in parts of it, moments of it. The irony, though, is all this is billed as better self-knowledge, right? Why don't you know yourself better? Finally, do what Socrates told you. But this comes at the potential price of denying the self a place in the knowledge process. To show you what I mean, I'll give you a simple contrast. When, back in the day, Benjamin Franklin records his observance of the 13 virtues, and that was a discreet and ritualized process. Every evening he sits down and says, have I been temperate today? Have I been uh, chaste? And then he says, no, I haven't really been chaste today. And then, you know, he, he won't, yeah. Um, in other words, it's Franklin's own interpretive faculty, his memories, his thoughts, his, his ethics. That's what governs the data curation process. In contrast, uh, consider rescue time, the web browser extension that monitors computer use to chart productivity. So, do you tend to slack off more often on Wednesdays? Do you actually spend 24% of your desk time on social media when you're meant to be working? You know, and you know, if you do that, I'm sure there were many good holistic reasons uh, that things turned out the way it did, and cat videos is now the number one thing in your uh, in, in your stats feed. But it, but there's the but here. It is the beauty and terror of correlational knowledge systems that it's going to just produce conclusions purely based on what it measures, and then as these things grow in prominence there's an implicit suggestion that what it cannot measure is not as important in comparison to the things that it can measure and calculate. And so, in this new breed of self-trackers, you've got more and more of the knowledge production process occurring beyond the subject's experiential access. And so what the machines are doing is they're sort of trying to delve directly to your body. And elsewhere I've described this distinction as act body and trace body. You've got the body of you know, me doing things, me going out, me talking, me thinking, me having memories. But whenever I do that, just like the physical body leaves behind hair and all other kinds of physical detritus, and then that's where people like Sherlock Holmes or uh, the X-Files come in and try and figure out where you were. In the same way, you leave digital traces wherever you go. And these machines are sort of coming in to say, we're not going to ask you what you did. We're not going to poll you. We're not going to do surveys. We're going to go straight to what your body has been saying. The final aspect of this is that when you've got this kind of direct knowledge pipe uh, being installed, it also risks denying the self the time and space to sort of 
lie to yourself or tell white lies to obfuscate, to not worry about something for a while, to be in denial, to play with your identity, to shield yourself from criticism, whatever. All the ways to make yourself a little bit ambiguous, a little bit amorphous for the moment while you recover to catch your breath. Now, the rhetoric of places like the quantify self, they tell you that this can be empowering. They, can, they will say, this is how you finally own your data. The government is already watching you and everything you do, why don't you use that power for yourself? And that's not necessarily untrue. However, the price of owning your data or the responsibility of trying to own your data is now you've got the injunction to measure yourself better, take care of yourself in ways that improves your numbers. You have to optimize and analyze yourself in ever more efficient ways. And so, the empowering logic uh, pushed by these things is analogous to how surveillance systems say, we have to do this because of the lone wolves, because anybody could be killed at any moment. In the same way, there's a kind of general foil underneath which we are being pushed to become good datafiers, good consumers of data, and people who already learn to see themselves in a datafied way before they've ever left the privacy of their own home or their own computer. So to begin to close and to bring things together, I guess what I'm trying to say is across both data's intimacy and self-tracking and this frenetic search for certainty in the state surveillance sphere, you're seeing the revival, or not even a revival, just a renewal, a repackaging of a very old modern project towards objectivity, towards objective knowledge. And objectivity, of course, has been an organizing fantasy for its entire modern history. If you look back at, as Dustin and Gallison tell you, if you look back at ideals of objectivity in the 19th century, it was a process where science sought to painstakingly eliminate the human scientists from the knowledge-making process. They wanted to be able to say, you know, what I have created has nothing to do with what I like to eat or what I think about science. Um, so positioning, so, so when these technologies position themselves in this heritage, when they position themselves as the next great leap in the techno-teleology of objectivity, what they're doing is they're leveraging a gravitational force with centuries of accumulated heft. And then they're giving it a new sheen to say, you, yeah, yeah, you, you know, some people are cynical about objectivity and all that now, but look, we've got the new technologies that can actually upgrade and so a honeymoon kind of objectivity. At the core of this mobilizing fantasy is the fictional object of raw data. By that, in most cases, self-trackers mean data which is fresh out of the sensor, data which is untreated, unprocessed, seemingly anterior to analysis and bias, the raw stuff of objective reality. So there's this imagination of raw data. And in fact, the term itself is kind of redundant because data itself means the givens the things that we take for granted, the things that, and again, there's an interpassive relation going on where we say to the machines, you give me the sleep score and I'm just going to, I'm just gonna work with that man. I'm just gonna say that's true, that, that is the truth, and then I'm going to try and interpret it or do something about it. But did I say this thing is, well, so what, what, what raw data does is it tries to give you this kind of concrete object that the machines are supposed to be getting but it's a concrete fiction in a way. 
Every piece of data is the product of a socio-technical system. It's, every piece of data is the result of human decisions that say, this is what we're going to measure. This is how we're going to say heart rate variability is linked to stress. This is what we're going to say galvanic skin response, which is the electrical conductance on your skin. We're just going to relate that to stress, and we're just going to give you that number. When you make those decisions, and then there is subsequent scientific debate, so Fitbit is in trouble right now, for example, um, when you go through these kinds of decisions, there's always a human component that later gets smoothed out to present the objective score that the machine has been able to provide for you. Well, in terms of that 19th century objectivity I just talked about, Theodore Porter has come back to say, yes, but do you realize what kind of people these scientists were? <coughs> Often, the scientists who were being mechanically objective in their, uh, in their labs these were the same people who were also expected to embody a set of moral virtues and personality traits. They were expected to come out to the public and say, science is the future. They were, supposed, they were expected to imagine a certain confidence in the future of science. What I'm trying to say here is, even if these machines are fully objective and gather raw data and give us this kind of certain factuality, the kinds of people that we are enjoying to become in order to use and to benefit from and to understand and to keep up with these machines is definitely not just objective. There is a certain moral and ideological quality to it. So we're finally reaching the end here, uh, I promise. But I can't leave one question unasked, which is the so what question. Evgeny Morozov is, of course, one of the most visible technology critics of the last few years. And he's recently written to say, actually, technology criticism has become politically sterilized, that it cannot offer a positive vision of what the hell we should be doing with technology. It's not entirely true. Uh, entirely un it's not entirely untrue. <laughs> I was being very unkind there for a second. Uh, but still, so what? So, you know, I've said quite a few critical things about these technologies, but are we supposed to just roll it all back, hit undo, go Luddite? The thing is, when's the last time American society, never mind the others, when's the last time American society reached this kind of broad distribution of a new technological thing and then decided we're just going to cancel it and send it all back? When's the last time we did that kind of recall? Maybe nuclear technology, although that's sort of a half recall on the way back again. So. That's not necessarily a realistic solution. I don't think it may. Now, the other strategy is for people to say, let's reform or even dismantle the growing surveillance state. Let's get rid of this thing because it's turning us into a big brother, big brother state. The problem with that is it makes the same mistake as people who call Trump supporters stupid deplorables and say, oh, if only these poor uneducated people knew what was really good for them, if only they had the information, surely they wouldn't be voting for Donald goddamn Trump. Now, the problem with that logic is people have strong reasons that they look for a sense of security in surveillance. And people have strong reasons that they feel the political establishment needs any kind of challenge it can get, even if it comes in the form of Donald Trump. So if we start to make broad, broad suggestions that don't address these kinds of reasons or these needs, then they are only going to be preaching to the choir. So what about surveillance then? We can see that this kind of project for objectivity is 
responding to a widely felt need for systems of decision-making and judgment. Terrorist attacks may be far rarer than car accidental lightning strikes, yes, but we still want to be able to believe that we have minimized the risks. We still want to believe that those people who do end up dying are not on our conscience. It's not because of our negligible, uh, negligible decision, uh, being negligible. We want to believe that we are living the most happy, most productive, most efficient kind of life. At least quite a few of us apparently do, given how popular these things have become. And here, I don't think the problem is technology per se. I think part of the problem is that we've turned technology into a vast autonomous entity governed by its own principles. Principles like, if you can build it, then you should build it. If you can build it, they'll come. And if you can make it efficient, you should. If you can calculate something, then why not? It's better to know than not to know, so on and so forth. What I've talked about for the last 40 minutes or so, these are transitional frictions, disjunctures, injustices, confusions that are accompanying a newly arriving technology. But these things are not gonna go away when we upgrade to the next version of surveillance, when we have more mature hardware and software. At best, what they're gonna do is they're gonna lock on a particular allocation of arbitrariness, of ignorance, of secrecy, of power asymmetry. So what I'm saying is, I think these frictions show <clears throat> that it is increasingly necessary to be explicitly moral about our technological decisions that we need a way to let our values about how things should be negotiate the claims of what technology makes possible. Now this isn't entirely new. Moral philosophy, decision theory, and other fields have ruminated on, you know, they've already talked about moral aspects of technology. They've asked, do cyborgs count as humans? Should we give them moral status? Uh, should algorithms be accountable for the decisions they make? Uh, should, uh, where do you draw the line on socially acceptable risks? Now all of those things are of obvious importance, but distinct from all of that, I guess I'm trying to suggest that there might be a moral duty, or there might be a duty to moralize the terms by which the status of knowledge, the status of probability, the status of good enough, the status of being able to trust in the figure, all of those things. I think there is a duty to moralize that process. Andrew Feinberg wrote 25 years ago and said, the question about technology is we need to be able to think of another technology. By, by that he meant socialist technology. In this case, I think the question is, it's not whether a technology is good or bad, whether we should have it or return it to the shop. It's more about how can we how can we live with the advent of these technologies in a way that we don't just believe what they're saying to us and we don't just believe in the goals that they're setting. How can we learn to say, well, we've got new technologies, but what kind of ends do we want it to serve? Another way of saying it is what is being done to us right now in the name of better knowledge? And what are the consequences of being able to say, we know enough or we know more? We're used to saying, well, of course it's always positive. But I think everything that I've tried to say here boils down to the suggestion that knowledge never means just one thing. 
and it definitely doesn't mean the eradication of uncertainty. And so, the political decisions, the power decisions, the decisions of justice, the decisions we make about assumptions, about trust, about expertise, all of these things that are folded into the claim, we know better, that is where our moral questions need to be addressed. All right, so I'll stop here. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sana. Uh, why don't we open it up for questions? Uh, questions from the audience. communications that have been crafted to convince people uh, to maybe leave some narratives behind. Like, I think a lot of the work that is done to get people to reflect about surveillance is about proving that we all have something to hide, or at least that it's not true that if you are up to no good, that if you're only up to good, then you have nothing to hide. Like, I, I think a lot of the work focuses on that, but I don't think we're being very successful. And so now with, with the Snowden Pardon campaign, uh, which I think is trying to frame him as someone who did a public service, possibly someone who was a bit of a hero and that should be pardoned while he can be pardoned because he probably won't be pardoned in the next eight years. So like this is focusing on him now and it's like a very contextual thing. But if you're trying to do anti-surveillance activism in the long term beyond Snowden's pardon or beyond Chelsea Manning, like if you're trying to do a longer process, what are the messages that have been tested with people that resonate to so, sort of erase the, we've got nothing to hide, or if only we knew this about people, then this other problem would be solved? So let me try and answer, and tell me if I, tell me if I haven't, but so I've done nothing wrong is one of the most dominant rhetorical tropes in this debate, right? And the problem with that, of course, and I think that's part of the whole fabrication argument, is when you have enough, info when you have enough raw material, uh, you can make anything look suspicious or not suspicious. Um, and so it's not about whether you know you've done anything right or wrong, of course. It, it should be about who gets to try and build a case against you. But in reality, um, what's ended up happening is there's two sides to this. There's the legal or the official way in which these kinds of rhetorics succeed and fail, and there's the public debate element of it. So on the legal side, the big problem has been proving what's called concrete particularized harm, because that's the legal precedent in the United States for being able to even file a case. So over the last 10 years, many cases have failed because they were not able to show that I, Sanahong, myself, have been surveilled in whatever, and it has cost me a job. Because of course, by definition, I can't access that information, right? And even if I somehow access it in a kind of shady way, that gets thrown out due to state secrets privilege. So on the legal side, that is currently the big blockage point. Um, and the other blockage point is the politics of the Supreme Court. On the public debate side, I am not 100% up to date on more practical surveys where you ask people what kinds of rhetoric work the best with what demographics. Um, the one thing I will say though, 
is even there, it's not just about rational decision making. It's about the ability to imagine. Um, I don't know how many people have seen it when comedian John Oliver managed to interview Snowden in Russia. He did. One of the things that he did was he went to Snowden and said, Edward Snowden, you think you're doing a great job here? I'll show you. And he shows him interviews in Times Square with random people. And you know they'll say things like, who's Snowden? Uh, and then John Oliver says, I'm going to teach you, Edward, on how to wake people up. This is what you have to do. So then John Oliver goes to the people in Times Square and says, can you imagine something called the dick pic program where the government takes pictures of your dicks uh, and saves them and looks at them? And then you get people saying, you get a, you, you get a, I think, yeah, I think you get a grandma saying something like, if, uh, if my husband had took a picture of her dick and sent it to me and the government had it, I would like to know that, I would like to know that they had very good reasons for doing so. Um, <laughs> it's a joke, of course, but I think there is a ring of truth to it, which is, Sure, there is no dick pic program, although Snowden alleges, without proof yet, that people do it all the time. But I think it's about what kinds of things can you provide to people to close that gap between what we are allowed to know and what we need to feel like we know to be able to act. So on the government side, they're using fabrications to fill this gap. On the public side, I think what people like Snowden and John Oliver are doing is saying, well, we need to put dicks into this picture. If that's what it takes to get people to actually imagine the many things that go wrong, that's what we've got to do. So I think it is a battle of imaginations and of images. I know that doesn't exactly answer your more straight question, but- That's basically what inspired it. I think that's the highlight of public communication on surveillance, that people care about dick pictures, they don't care about surveillance, they do care about dick pictures. But I wanted to know if, if you've encountered similar narratives or just prompts that have been good, because that's basically the only one I know. I think Snowden's effort at narrativizing has been more uh, reasonable, rational, um, very, very liberal humanist. Right, that's the ideology that he's going for. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, just to add to that point, I mean, I think, of course, part of the reason people are so comfortable with state-sponsored surveillance is because we're already comfortable with, you know, Google or Facebook or whomever uh, mining our data for commercial purposes. So um, how does, like, that kind of regime fit into your research? Sure, corporate data mining is the other big piece. Um, and in many ways, the state often just follows where private companies have already blazed the path. Um, usually in the corporate data mining area, the, the way the debate gets set up is how can you educate people to all the ways in which their data is being exploited so that they will wake up and make the right decision for themselves, which is to in so somehow resist this kind of exploitation. Now I think, I can think of many reasons why that is never going to happen. Um, you can't just make the terms of use agreement uh, clear enough because then people will spend the rest of their lives literally reading it. Uh, even if you do, at some point, unless you want to opt out of everything and shadow your smartphone, you have to opt in to what is going on at a wider structural societal level. So, so I admit that my politics are not very radical at all. For me, the question isn't how do you overthrow this stuff and install a new technological regime overnight. For me, it's more of if people are going to start getting used to this kind of datafication and data exploitation, how can they figure out the kinds of margins, the kinds of spaces where they can still use that system to get what they want? And sometimes what they want isn't privacy. What they want isn't data, uh, complete control over their data. Sometimes they're very, very happy to let all sorts of things float all over the internet 
So I think we need a more realistic assessment, just like Trump supporters. We need a more realistic assessment of what's actually important to people and what kind of spaces are being provided for that. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks very much. I think you did a great job of tying together um, a number of di different strands, and it's clearly a, a many-limbed um, beast, this, this whole issue. Um, I was wondering, wondering if you could delve a little more into the quantified self uh, movement, because the way um, to a certain extent, the way you characterized it was very much a kind of corporate, you know, another opportunity for startups and making uh, money and getting data out of more, more, more ridiculous activities. But of course, there is this um, quite uh, proud community of um, quantified selfers, because I think they call themselves and so mm -hmm. some great ethnographic work done on this uh, trend. And I'm just wondering the extent to which you think there's a difference between, since we're talking about kind of ideology and, and what we want from technology, you know, this subset of people have identified that greater analysis of, of themselves, something they actually actively want and something they work towards. So I wonder whether and how you can square that with what is clearly a slightly more cynical corporatist view of how we might harvest more and more data about ourselves. Sure. And so, so to be sure, Gary, um, Gary Wolf, one of the co-founders of the Quantify Self, he would be very disappointed with how I've, how I've managed to portray them in this particular instance after, after, after we've talked for a while. Um, so the Quantify Self community is definitely more of a you know, smaller DIY, the kinds of people who often have the technical expertise and the interest to build their own tracking systems, the people who actually know what's going on inside the Fitbit, so on and so forth. Um, and there are a lot of them that tend to share, in fact, many of the, many of the cynicism, cynical points that I've raised. I guess what we're seeing here is parallel to what's happened with personal computing and the internet, where you have a, you have a situation where it, a certain kind of alternative usage or technical development happens with a smaller group of connoisseurs, as what you would put it, and then when it explodes and starts reaching the layman, something changes uh, by virtue of that scalar shift. Um, things change in the sense that when you go from everybody in the room building their own tracking thing that is custom tailored to their own meningitis or whatever else. When you go from that to over 10 million Fitbits sold and so on and so forth. And when you go to a more simplistic vision of get the best numbers possible for you, I think that's where the choices happen. And by choice, I don't mean someone sitting there making the choice, but the choices happen by which something quite different from that DIY community gets established as the norm outside. Um, and Gary Wolf, in fact, is concerned in his own way about that kind of dis, uh, disjuncture that's growing. So that's what I'm trying to sort of identify. Yeah, thank you for the, for the talk. Um, I want to maybe complicate uh, or push back a little bit on something interesting that happened here in sort of the dialogue back and forth around, you know, what are the strategies that we can use to resist the encroachment of the surveillance state and the rise of corporate surveillance and so on. And I think it's something that we see happen a lot, uh, both in academic discourse and also uh, in sort of advocates and activist discourse. So there's a tendency to immediately universalize people as, so all people are subjects, we're all targeted by dragnet surveillance, we're all targeted by the, uh, by the corporate state. Um, but of course, Surveillance is uh, deployed unequally. It's deployed unequally uh, along existing lines of intercepting oppression, right? So surveillance has been developed traditionally by the states to police brown bodies, to police black bodies. Uh, historically, the, the origins of a lot of the surveillance systems that we have, everything from 
uh, from policing to communication systems that were designed to track and gather and then uh, centralize and share you know, information about runaway slaves uh, to the classic you know, panoptic system, which is about policing the bodies of incarcerated people, which of course in the US is intimately tied to the history also of, uh, of slavery uh, and to the reproduction of white supremacy. Um, so I guess one interesting thing that's happened in the last maybe couple of years is there started to, there started to be uh, a more vocal and visible critique uh, of the uh, univer universalizing norm of how it is that we should be resisting mm. surveillance uh, by talking about imaginary unmarked bodies, which are white cis male bodies, uh, and instead um, being specific about who's being targeted by surveillance regimes, uh, differentially targeted, and what the implications are. So that instead of having an abstract fear of what surveillance might do at some point in the future, if we let it run unchecked, we can talk about what it's doing now, what it's doing now in the you know, DHS uh, you know, deportation system that's constantly surveilling and then acting on the information to do night raids on families and deport two million people under, mm -hmm. under Obama. Um, so I guess, um, so I want to put that out there and then ask you, you know, is, is there a way forward which is based not on trying to create sort of a, a completely open, we're all being surveilled, so we all must resist together, but a more coalitional and identity-specific and structural location-specific politics of resistance to different surveillance regimes, differential surveillance regimes, so that if we say, well, one thing we want to do is we want to, um, I'll give a concrete example. So DHS has just proposed that um, on entry to the US, anyone who's not a citizen should add uh, their social media accounts on the entry form. <laughs> and um, they're, there are some people protesting this, and you know, percentage.org has put out a thing, and you know, various people are saying, well, no, we have to stop this. We don't want to let them do this. And yet it hasn't really taken off in the sort of uh, you know, site count, counter cybersecurity circles, you know, people who are, who are focusing more on the larger scale you know, NSA programs and so on. And I wonder, do we have some kind of possibility to say, well, no, let's do coalitional politics. Let's say we can stop these different specific pieces of the system, but only if we pay attention to how it's being differentially deployed. So two things here, I think. One is the way Snowden portrayed the problem and introduced the problem was very universalizing. Right? It was a way of, we are a liberal, humanist, democratic country, and that's what's at stake, and therefore all of us surely have the same opposition to it. Um, but as you say, the way in which this reaches us is entirely very different. Um, I think there's something laudable about that universalizing effort because that's the thing about slogans, right? Everybody thinks a, the same slogan means a different thing, but the slogan lets people still ally together and get behind something together, even when they mean very di slightly different things all the time. But the downside, you have described very, very well. So on the flip side of that, you've talked about coalitional effort of people who are differentially affected by surveillance and therefore have a different set of concerns. Or, and I think in agreeing with that, I think the risk point that that has to overcome is how the recognition of that differential treatment produces different parties of interest. Um, and you, look, you can see this with how people think about prisons and pe how people think about the policing of black people in the United States, where 
if you live in, say, the poorer neighborhoods of Western Philadelphia as a black person, and you are constantly hounded viscerally by the police who are wanting to always emphasize to you bodily that they are there and they are watching you and they are waiting for you, you and your drugs and your urine and everything else. That's a, that's a very different situation. And then there's efforts at coalitional politics, but there's also an outcome where people who are not subject to this end up having a very different political viewpoint by virtue of that differential. And I think it's notable that so many white male educated middle class tech savvy people have often been the most outraged about Snowden's revelations. Whereas ironically, it's a more gentlemanly kind of surveillance compared to the traditional police subjection. And so it's, but that doesn't even mean that it targets the white male class primarily, right? Right mm -hmm. now, most of the known victims are the racial minorities and especially the Muslims. So, you know, in agreeing that we need coalitional politics, I think that's the thing that is going to be really tricky to avoid. That p different sectors end up having different levels of giving a shit about it, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, I was interested in the modernizing imperative. And one thing is to sort of imagine um, the possibilities of the technology and then apply the modernizing at that point. But the other is, and what disturbed me about uh, about the way these um, you know, the surveil data is read, I mean, there's a moralizing that I think needs to be applied to the framework within which the surveillance data or even intimate data is read. So I think maybe some focus on that would also help. No, I absolutely agree, and I think very quickly I'll say the one thing that reminds me of is there. There's a bit in Ian Hacking. Um, where somebody is developing, you know, this is vague, somebody's developing something. Uh, but you know, you know, Ian Hacking's all about these modern, precur high modern precursors to our current efforts at systematizing knowledge and so on and so forth. So this guy's collecting all these numbers. I think it was Malthus, actually. And one of his critics said, you are so immoral. You are without morals. Because when you look at the numbers, you do not think about what should be in our world. And you do not think about what is right and wrong. You only look at the numbers and just say what they tell you. Which is, of course, supposed to be good science these days, right? So, so this, is the, this is the eternal thing, where somebody comes out and says something like, well, we know for a fact that black people kill black people more, and therefore they are, they are the dangerous people. And you know, I'm not saying this because I hate black people, but it's just the truth. It's just the mathematical truth. And you've got this strange moment in time when someone is telling, again, I think Malthus, that's not how you do it, right? From the very beginning. So there was a moment when it was less certain that when the demand for mathematical objectivity and the demand for a moral stance on what you say and believe, when they conflict, it wasn't always clear that the former is always supposed to win. I'm not sure that the latter should always win, because then we get into the ground of where do our morals stand on. But it's worth thinking about as well, yes. So I have a question about drivers, underpinnings. Um, the dynamic you described about the the, the, the pas de deux between risk and calculability is, is a pretty long-term phenomenon. You can go back to the to the 18th century already and see in the emergence of especially fire insurance, there there is a steady growth of just gathering data and trying to figure out you know to the, the actuarial charts to carry it out to the third decimal point of the chance of a fire and therefore pegging 
rates, fire insurance rates on that. So that A, heavy duty collection of data, B, quantifying it of that data, and C, doing it towards an end of trying to manage risk is long term. But obviously we're in a different space today and it's happening a lot more. Uh, and my question is why? Is that about, is that about, um, is there a political economy to this? Like where Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex, we now have the information industrial complex. It's huge business, it represents um, not just, I mean, the Google and Facebook side, obviously, but also the industries behind those. So one might say, okay, there's a driver here, there's a vested interest, and much like Eisenhower's predictions, these folks are pretty good at generating business, right. and, and this is just a healthy business model. Um, one might argue, uh, along the lines of Ulrich Beck and Anthony Giddens, that this is about modernity, and the, and the emergence of risk and the containment of risk is, um, grows in proportion to the complexity of modern societies. The more complex we are, the more slippery and tricky the task of, of, of nailing down risk, it becomes a kind of obsession We go off the deep end. So that's the corollary there would be uh, the necessity driven by modernity. And maybe a third way to look at it would, would be opportunity, that, that we now have technologies that are both ubiquitous and shed data nonstop. And that's an opportunity, of course. Uh, that's a new condition in the world. Um, and maybe there are others. I don't know, I'm just picking three here. But any sense of, uh, do you see a, a if one were to talk about drivers, underpinnings, because that would help then to sort of figure out where one might push back or... or. Yeah, um, I think I think I can talk about two. Um, and as Thukidides said, there's always the immediate cause and then there's the more long-term cause. Um, so in terms of the long-term cause, actually, the ways in which risk, uh, risk study scholars have changed their minds or developed their thoughts actually works in parallel with their subject. So you have people like Ulrich Beck who are writing in the 80s, Risk for Gesellschaft, about this kind of very modern, very solid, very systematic apparatus of risk calculation. And then near the end of his life, in the 2000s, he starts writing about how all of that is often going out the window now because of the, and then he says in the realist argument, the world is more unknown and dangerous than ever because of massive environmental crises, the, the biological uh, crises, and so, we are starting to see new paradigms. I don't subscribe to the realist argument because I feel like how can you ever defend the argument that says that the world is more dangerous and risky than before? I'm not sure you can. But whichever way you go about it, I think that reflects a heightened sensitivity to and a heightened fear of uncertainty in these fields. Um, and this is where we get that Rumsfeldian genius, right? The unknown unknowns and the known unknowns. And, and the thing about unknown unknowns is you don't know that you don't know. So if you want to ignore it, it's really easy to ignore it. But when you start looking into it, then you start looking into the abyss and you can never pull away. So that's one thing, the broader thing. I think, as you say, follow the money. And there is a very specific history of, of money flows here. If you look at the NSA, it was getting defunded out of its posterior uh, in the 90s. After Watergate, it had become very, very reluctant to do anything very risky in terms of uh, earning the public's ire. And after the end of the Cold War, there was a perception that it, you know, it surely doesn't need that much money. So after 9-11, that's when Michael Hayden sort of comes in and says, we need money up the wazoo. We need all the money that you can give us. And then after that, what they do is they can't handle all that money, but they've got to spend it. That's the number one rule of funding, right? Student committees, church committees, whatever. When you get the money, you spend it. Otherwise, the funds go down. 
So then what they do is they develop over the next 15 years a massive, massive web of private contractors, so much that the NSA can't actually keep track of all of them right now, just like they can't keep track of all of their data. One of them is Palantir, which is, of course, headed by Peter Thiel, uh, the founder of PayPal, recently the slayer of Gorka. So there is this whole web of dependencies of money trades that is being built up. And of course, when you want to ask for money, you're going to say, this is what we can do and this is why, we, why, you, know, why you need us. So there is that immediate history, if you want to call it corruption, if you want to call it good business, whatever you call it. So that's two things that I would point out. I have a question. Um, so I'm very interested in this uh, phrase uh, that you've used of uh, moralizing technology, or I'm not sure I got the exact. I'm wondering about the mechanisms for that. Uh, are you thinking of something like uh, Nissenbaum, contextual uh, management of privacy, or what are the actual uh, objective uh, elements of uh, some sort of an approach to moralizing technology? And just with the comment that, you know, as we try to moralize uh, on gun control and things of that sort, it's, it's rather futile. But uh, that, of course, has the amendment behind it. Uh, right, right. Was, uh, well, privacy doesn't exactly. So, so anyway, your thoughts on that. So there's a reason that the talk stops there, right? Because that's where my thoughts are at at the moment. And spent the last few months reading a lot of moral philosophy, decision theory, all of these things, uh, technology ethics, the kinds of fields that you would think are taking care of this stuff. And as I said, they take care of a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff on whether cyborgs count as human beings and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's great. Um, but that's not the same thing that we're talking about here, right? Um, the question of how we make moral decisions about how technology changes. And really, we sort of had a vacuum come up in that space after the 1960s era of uh, Louis Mumford, Jacques Ellul, these kinds. And of course, they had their own problems, right? They were very, very universalizing. They, in some ways, actually contributed to our view of technology with a big T as the monolith. Um, actually, one interesting clue I find is with Kevin Kelly, who is one of the co-founders of the Quantify Self. He is unabashedly utopian about this stuff. He thinks that new, sen new sensors will give us new senses, is basically what he says all the time. But when you read his book, which is called What Technology Want, uh, one of his books, he has a chapter where he goes, uh, like every good new age Silicon Valley white dude, to observe some of the other cultures. And he goes to, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm very unkind here to Kevin. Uh, and he goes and checks out the Amish. But what he learns there is something very, very interesting. Because this particular Amish uh, community has a process for deciding whether they adopt a new technology. Because the Amish don't disavow all forms of technology, obviously. So if I'm one of them and I say, this is a great smartphone, we should all start using it. They'll say, why don't you start using it for a couple of months and we will observe you. And they will observe not only how much more productive I become and all these other things that the smartphone promises. They don't care so much about that. They're looking at it from the perspective of how does it change your relationship with your wife? How does it change your sleeping patterns? How does it, all, the, all the things that they have already decided is important to them at a moral level. So the promotional aspect is sort of foreshortened. And then after a couple of months, they'll meet again, reconvene and say, You're, you seem to be living a whatever life. We'll get rid of it or whatnot. Um, we probably won't be able to do that exactly. I'm not sure if we should. But I think it's an important lesson to remember that whereas that community has a mechanism that they've decided on using their rules to say, can you come in a technological object A, 
we're basically leaving our flanks open in American society. We're sort of saying, yeah, if you can make it and if you can sell it, go ahead. And then, you know, we will all be transformed through it, but hey, it's, it's all a good thing, right? And so that's where I'm sort of thinking, do we have a mechanism for thinking about that? Why don't we? Do you think Nissenbaum's uh, approach, uh, legal approach, has any promise or any possibility there? Or is it, uh... I think it has promise, but I don't think it does what we're doing. I, I don't think it does this, because what Nissenbaum is sort of saying is privacy, so it's a very, it's a very more practical um, and legalistic <laughs> argument where she says, Privacy, nobody knows what it means. Uh, nobody has ever known quite what it means. It's always been, uh, it's always been held to sort of uh, legislate and rule on. And obviously, what people hold is important vis-a-vis -vis privacy is very different from what the word seems to mean. So she's trying to do this very important work, and other people are too, of coming up with a definition that accords better to what people value. And yeah, I mean, thinking about it, that is part of building a moral apparatus well, yeah. to say, this is something technology actually needs to respect. Um, but I think privacy is a very, very difficult thing to rescue because like freedom, especially in American society, it, is, it has become entrenched with so many different interests. What was, what was the name of the, um, there was a federal office that existed to review technologies. It was decently funded and it was cut, uh, I believe by Reagan. You know what it's called? I can't remember the name, but yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. So um, there, we did actually make a decision uh, as well. We, the nation state of the United States, at some point made a decision to fund a federal office to review new technologies before they're rolled out, and uh, uh, which was eliminated. That's sort of a policy thing. So I mean, there are different sectors. <coughs> policy is one, and, uh, legal legal framework is another, uh, and then organizations, as you're you're talking about. Well, it was tasked. It was tasked with reviewing new te technological developments and then explaining them to Congress and, and to uh, regulators. So it wasn't only, it was like it worked across, uh, across branches and it basically, it, it advised, produced reports and advised anyone in government who needed to better understand the implications of a particular yep. technology. One of, the, one of the problems with, uh, I know the organization you're talking about, I forget its name as well, but the scientists that were developing these technologies would often say, well, my job is to develop new technologies. My job is not to be continually running these longitudinal or even short-term <laughs> tests. And so they couldn't really get those people to do it. And then they didn't have as much funding to hire private people to do it. So you had all these people saying, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. And so I think in addition to the funding being cut, even internally within the government, there wasn't enough motivation to keep it, keep that mission going. I mean, that's the Stephen Chapin problem, which is that we have now trained scientists to say, I can't do that kind of yeah. stuff because that's not objective. I wouldn't yeah. be a good scientist if I waded into all that stuff. Although, I think it's notable that when it comes to ecological issues um, <clears throat> and the problem of the planet going down the drain, <clears throat> we have seen people at least more actively call for these kinds of measures where we might say, can we have a centralized thing for funneling through all ecological impact of new technologies and whatever? Or can we have a way to have scientists become more capable of rendering that kind of judgment? And it's always been a question for me as to why haven't we, how, why haven't we learned that lesson and adapted it to other areas? Maybe we, we, we need the earth to be going down the drain to do that. You know, maybe it needs to be that serious. Maybe we can't. Yeah, um, I'm curious about the relation between knowing and law. Um, 
uh, I noticed that um, a lot of the issues, especially that you brought up um, regarding like the the, um, the origins of surveillance, um, like the the um, underground railroad. Um, and immigrants, uh, or illegal immigrants, um, they're about like adhering, we're developing a system of knowing in order to apply a law. Um, but in both of these circumstances, we're saying we're, uh, for the most part, against that law. And I'm wondering if there's space for a, um, a moral argument that um, uh, the goal in maintaining privacy is actually to get away with breaking the law. Um, to, to actually like do the very thing when we say, if we're not doing anything wrong, we have nothing to worry about, that actually it's the exact opposite of that. We're trying to get away with doing things that are currently thought of as wrong in hopes that in the future they don't seem wrong. So at one level, I agree that one of the big things about opposing surveillance is we want to be able to get away with stuff. Um, I guess I would question why that's so bad. Right, um, and he, th this is what I mean. So, if you think about someone like Seneca in the Roman Empire, he's a big—he's a, he's a big name, right? That means the moment he wakes up, within ten minutes, he's out the door of his atrium, and there's already people waiting for him. That's his retinue, because the way you showed political support was you followed that guy around all day long. So he had zero privacy, except in the bedroom, unless the servants come in, right? That's another thing, right? With servants and slaves, we had a very different metric of uh, privacy. Right. It was much rarer to just be on my own and not be watched by any living soul for such a long time. But my point is, Seneca obviously didn't chafe at this, right? He was used at, uh, he was used to this. Um, but when you have that kind of relationship, you can also assume that if Seneca had to stop to rearrange his trousers or, or, or scratch his butt, you can imagine that people weren't taking photos of that. You can imagine that his retinue was sort of learning to not see some things or learning not to abuse the kind of visibility that they had of this character. So what I mean by this is it's never been a case where it's never been a case where we're okay with having absolutely everything visible for review and scrutiny. And that's not necessarily because we want to uh, kill people or rob people or whatever else. Take pornography, for example. So it's legal. Legally, there's nothing wrong if you're an adult. But do people want their pornography viewing habits, whether they exist or not, to be known to everybody else, right? Um, but it could be any number of other things, right? What if I love SpongeBob SquarePants and must get through three episodes a day for me to sleep at night? Do, you know, should you really know that? Should you really know that? Um, and I think at this point, we're at a stage where we have to say, Either we decide, okay, you can find out my SpongeBob obsession, but you're going to learn a kind of social generosity to not be, not be an ass about it. Because if I really looked into you, then we'd see something else with you and Teletubbies or whatever, right? Either we go down that path where being public is less strict and scandalous than it currently is, or we go towards a path where certain kinds of contextual integrity are protected and we say, yes, it is okay to have some darkness. Yes, it is okay for me to not know what's going on sometimes. So I feel like this, I feel like we're often tricked into having an obsessive binarism. Light and shadow, known and unknown, you know, secrets are bad, we want things to, so on and so forth. 
I know I'm running a little par uh, late laterally to what you're talking because okay. because in both of those cases the illegal immigrants and um, underground railroad I think they'd be accused of theft not mm -hmm. just indecency mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so this is where I mean the shorthand answer is Foucault's margins of tolerated illegality which is to say with any system of policing and any system of law there are places and occasions where the law knows that something bad is going on. So it's like North Korea right now, um, where they used to have a lot of black markets, and they were black secret markets, but everybody knew where they were. And you know, it's like every Saturday, 2 p.m., come under this building. And the state knew. And it was, it was illegal, obviously. But they let them get away with it because they understood <coughs> that sometimes what is nominally illegal or sometimes what is problematic is also a way to contain some of the evil or for other benefits and purposes to be fulfilled. I.e. in North Korea, they've always had chronic shortage with the state being able to provide enough food for the people. So when Kim Jong-il came down and stamped that out, when he took his own laws too literally and closed out that margin, millions of people started dying of starvation. And that was part of the ways in which he suffered a degree of regime destabilization. So I think there's always been these margins and these spaces, these buffer zones. And if you get rid of them in one place, you're gonna see a pop away in another. So it's not always about chasing them down and getting rid of it all. Just, that's, that's the debate on illegal immigrants in this country, right? Um, where a lot of people will say, it's not actually the best idea to just cut it all off because there are impacts to that too. For example, people's social security funds or whatever else. So a speculative question. Um, I wonder sometimes if, if this project at the end of the day is not, is not predictive, but rather is forensic. And what I mean by, and, and the, the anecdote that triggered this is as a kid I visited the FBI and it was a very creepy, I don't know if any of you have gone to Washington and visited this place, it's very creepy. And at least when I visited as a whatever, eight year old, as you leave the place, there's a couple people kind of standing at this little turnstile you walk through they say, we're looking at all of you. We've caught, you know, seven of the most wanted people walking th through this turnstile. And like, we're looking at you. It scared the crap out of me. But what was striking in that tour was they went through all the way they tapped phones and how the volumes of data that they had. <clears throat> Every crucial case that they would put inside of a glass box and brag about was broken not by their efforts, but by betrayal. Hmm. by someone turning in someone, and then, having done that, they could mount a case. They could go back through all the data they'd collected, and they could sort of find patterns, and they could construct a case. But in fact, the reveal in every single major spot, this was mostly Cold War spy stuff, every single one was someone who turned. And I wonder here, you know, we have all this data, more and more data, more data they can handle, and in fact, it doesn't seem to, I mean, there is predictive policing, and I don't want to dismiss that, but at least at the NSA level, it seems far more attuned to sort of reconstructing things after the fact than actually projecting ahead and anticipating. Is that just? I, I would be hesitant to put it as strongly as you have, but certainly there's in questions to be asked about the actual methodology um, of how the, soft, how the software they use is set up and what kind of variables they're uh, crunching and so on and so forth. Um, without getting too much into it, one of the issues is obviously, <coughs> if you're working with known terrorists, you're always working with a very small sample. So when you try, so when you try and have a correlational uh, a database that says, we're just going to run through the emails of everybody or whatever and try and detect people who have enough red flags, 
you have to define what the red flag is in the first place. And it's often a manual sort of process, similar to what they were doing with the lone wolves before, which is to go back and say, well, these guys all seem to be losers with no girlfriends, so let's go for people with no girlfriends, so on and so forth. And there's no good uh, epistemic mechanism for ensuring that that is exactly correct. Now, people try to overcome that with Bayesian um, processes and machine learning and say, well, and, and that's the thing about a lot of the airport biometric systems and things like that these days, where they'll say, well, the TSA agent might think you're just fine, but the machine is sort of flagging it, so I'm gonna look, and it's gonna be a false positive. But the more we do it, the better the machine will get eventually. And so there is, a, there is an interesting futurism to that. I think a full assessment of just how predictive they, these things are is maybe forever impossible in terms of the kinds of information we have. Most of the stuff that we get from Snowden is things like training manuals, or how the NSA advertises a turn achievement to other agencies, rather than the actual nitty gritty of what an analyst did and how they performed in a particular thing. Um, but most, mostly what we've been able to see is the way in which they categorize the variables and categorize their successes, as you say, can often be very retroactive or very much, it's, it's very much uh, giving your human intuition and guesswork a computerized font. Did you want to? Just on that. My understanding of dragnet surveillance is it's particularly ineffective when dealing with like, the supposed lone wolf model, right? Because at least like when we're looking at the two programs that Snowden reveals that particularly 205 and the phone records, that that like builds on a presumption of like networks, right? And if, if you're dealing with like the supposed lone wolf who's self-radicalizing on the internet or whatever, presumably they're not going to be making those phone calls that would allow them to, whether it's the two hop or the three hop rule, right, to do that program. So. I was interested in like the, that focus on dragnet surveillance, particularly the lone wolf contract. Definitionally, the lone wolf is someone that's difficult for these kinds of dragnet systems, right? Um, so, absolutely. Um, but the problem is, of course, the zero tolerance climate is real because when you had the what is it, the San Bernardino shootings, uh, one of the big public responses was, "Look at this guy, look at him now, got so many problems with his life. Why couldn't we have known earlier?" Um, that sort of gets replicated in some of the Paris attacks and such and such. So, so every time you hear that the intelligence agencies actually knew this guy, or they had actually had him, in a, had, him, had him talking to a policeman a few months ago about some kind of minor, that people use that to sort of then say, well, that's a huge failure. We should be getting those things. So I think we play a part, or we play a part in driving this climate of zero tolerance such that as you say, we're trying to make these databases and software work on tasks that it's not necessarily best suited for. I have another question on uh, uh, maybe related to that. You're the boss. Um, so this term radicalization, I'm wondering if you've considered this a, a little bit because you're talking about indeterminacy and so forth, and you come across this term all the time, something was radically or rapidly radicalized and so have you thought about that at all and what that what that uh, narrative is if it is a narrative or what kind of terminology that actually reflects kind of thinking it's a, it's a careful topic because the first thing I don't want to do is make pronouncements about how radicalization happens mm -hmm. um, you know how would I know anything about these people and how it's exactly used, so the term gets used right right so how, you know and for me, that's the, that's the question that people would try so hard to figure this out. So that's always the thing with the Boston Bombers. They were looking all the way back and then saying, 
is it the moment when the marriage breaks down or is it the moment when the father leaves the country is it the moment when he moves to a new school what is the moment that goes and then sets him on the path and what's the point of no return and the question I had when I was reading this stuff is is there even a point of radicalization what's the assumption that you guys are going in with and why do you assume that so clearly if someone decides to do something like that there is a degree to which they are stepping outside the normal realms of possible actions that doesn't mean that they're monsters and nothing they do makes sense but because we fear that we try to then say he must be rational in some respect and we're going to figure out how this terrible machine works so that we can shut it down so I think the bias here is we have we're sort of saying we have to assume that everything else Every, everything we know isn't completely alien, we have to assume can be rationally calculated and figured out. I think that's the driving motive behind all these theories about radicalization. Um, I, and I think in the, few, in the last few years, some people have tried to do more of actually talking to people who were radicalized and then came back from the brink, or people who are often in contact with people that are thinking about these kinds of things. I think there is not enough of that at all. And you actually have, you know, you actually have to talk to, if you want, young Arab Muslim kids who are discontent for some reason and maybe express some kind of violent intent. That's the stage where you can really find things out, although I don't know if it will ever be generalizable. I don't know if the lone wolves will ever be anything more than a series of n equals one. Well, it's, um, it's a term that mainly gets, uh, as I've, I've known it anyway, it's uh, mainly used uh, with um, terrorism associated with religious <laughs> uh, religious uh, yeah. contexts. And it seems to have a uh, model that has something to do with uh, conversion. So there's this, this conversion. You know, somebody converts to this religion or that religion or whatever. And so radicalization seems to somehow fit into that category of uh, events. It's uh, something that happens rapidly, it's inspirational, it's uh, subconscious, it's all these other things. So anyway, just... Here, here's one thing I'll say that I'll probably regret later, amongst all the other things that I'll probably regret later. Um, I think the way people use religious conversion as a sign of radicalism is the same as people using racism to explain Trump supporters in the way that these days, saying this guy became religious, he grew a bit, he grew a beard, he started, you know, religion here becomes shorthand for saying he has entered the realm of the unknowable, the unreasonable. He has exited the realm of rational decision making, and he has become this other figure. Um, and I think we do the same kind of thing when we say Trump supporters are all racist, and that's why they're doing this, because that's a way to say these guys are not reasonable people. These guys are driven by a monstrous kind of weird irrational irrationality. And I think it's just a way of packaging it as religiousness or racism or... Right, well, the term doesn't get applied to people who are, you know, people who murder trans women of color yeah. on the street or exactly. like kids yeah. with guns who go into churches and They're murder radical, people. Or, so. you know, they don't, then we seek solutions that are individually psychologized about what was it about this person's life that produced, uh, you know, this rupture where they were, you know, were able to do this to others and didn't seem as human. We apply it again differentially. Uh, you know, it's race and religion based, and and 
No, exactly. And that's just a fad right now because what all they've done is replace Ivan, the Russian killer, paid by this USSR, with Mohammed bad guy, the unknown Arab discontent guy on the internet living in some suburb of San Francisco. That's all they've done. And we're not going to make progress in figuring these people out when you're just trading these things. Next time it might be Asian, so on and so forth. Okay, well, I think we've uh, used up our time, and uh, I want to thank Sun Ha for it. Thank you. Thank you.